Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, are you ready for life in space in the weightless void? Yeah, pretty much. You are? Yeah, I've yeah. been in training for it. Okay. Yeah. Zero G. Yeah, of course you have to stay in training. That's the thing, right? Yeah, yeah. You can't. I mean, that that is the problem of our bodies, right? We're not really built for uh, for the void. Yeah, the the void. It's quite a quite a hurdle to overcome uh, when we're we're trying to envision this long term future in which uh, humans really get serious about wading out into the cosmic ocean, right? To to steal uh, Sagan's uh, term there. Yeah, the thing is, though, I mean, it is on the horizon. I mean, this is one of those moments you can probably pause and think, okay, all of this has seemed like some sort of uh, crazy agenda that we'll never get to. But the fact of the matter is, is that space colonization is sort of around the corner, if you take the wide view angle, right? Um, I mean, think of someone like Elon Musk, the mm-hmm. PayPal guy. I mean, he has publicly stated that his long-term goal is to privately fund the colonization of Mars, so, and he has a lot of money to do that, right? Yeah. Um, you have the pol- polar explorers Tom and Tina Shorgan, and they're designing a private flight to Mars. And recently, the Europe-based Mars One project announced its goal of establishing a human colony on Mars by 2023. All these things are, uh, are, are being funded privately, which gives them a little bit more oomph in terms of their realization. True. Okay, these are all great plans. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. but I can't help but be reminded, I think a lot of us in our, say, early 20s, we may have gotten in our mind at one point. I'm going to move to New York. I'm totally going to move to New York, and I'm going to be. I'm going to get a job there. I'm going to uh-huh. live in apartments. Going to be just looking to move, you know. And granted, some of us actually do that, but uh, for the rest of us, there comes a point when you realize that there is a there are a series of steps uh, between the idea and the reality uh, that have to be carried out, and uh, and it's easy to skim over those when you're dreaming. Um, we, in our recent episode about the movie Prometheus, we discussed magic anti-gravity um, or magical gravity mm-hmm. aboard spaceships. Right. In these dreams, where we try and envision uh, what the future of, of a manned space flight will be like, uh, we often will just throw out a cheap, uh, not all that well explained, if explained at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, artificial gravity scenario so that we don't have to deal with the realities of weightlessness, uh, zero uh, G and micro G um, during the flight. Mm -hmm. Because uh, as we know that, and as we're going to discuss in this podcast, uh, gravity is really essential to life. It's essential to life as we know it, to the evolution of life as we know it. Mm -hmm. And life as it exists all around us lives in a state that uh, depends on gravity. Okay, so getting back to your New York analogy to moving in your 20s, are you talking about something like if you don't go in your 20s and get used to living in 200 square feet of space and instead you stay in your comfy place of a 1,000 square feet, by the time you're 30, you'll never be able to adapt back to that 200 square feet, foot of space? I th- well, I think that's true, because you do get the impression that once people move to New York, they cannot move out. Right. And they, they make, you know, they'll say, oh, well, you know, I, 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 I love the art here, I love the culture here, and I'm living my dream and, and all this. But, but perhaps it's uh, simply that if they, they actually moved to another location, their bodies would just fall apart on them. Okay. Crushed, so there's, you know. yeah, that New York has its own gravity. That's yeah. what you're saying. Uh, much like outer space has, you know, microgravity. So that's the problem here, right? This adaptability. And yet we know that we are pretty adaptable as a species. That's right. At least over the long term. And there have been a number of uh, science fiction, uh, you know, ponderings about life 
uh, in a weightless environment. Well, one that comes to mind uh, most readily because I'm, I'm reading it right now are the ousters in uh, Hyperion, Dan Simon's uh, novels, uh, kind of a, you know an epic philosophical space opera type of deal. And there are these uh, these humans that have. Uh, uh, in the past, uh, traveled out into the void and have grown used to uh, a microgravity situation. So now they're like long, slender humans that uh, have to wear uh, powered exosuits if they're uh, going to go into a, a world with gravitation. Mm-hmm. They have uh, their, their suits will often have a, a robotic tail on the end that helps them uh, uh, navigate uh, like weightless corridors and the wow. like. Wow, and like kind of propel them a little bit forward. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is an interesting idea, you know, because you're, you're bringing in ideas of not only physical changes in a weightless environment, but also uh, cybernetic augmentation uh, to cope with uh, this new environment of, of space, which is something we've gone into in the past when we discussed cyborgs and mm-hmm. when we discussed uh, the future of man's space travel and the, uh, the werewolf principle. So, you know, if you guys haven't already clued into it, this is what we are talking about today. This yes. idea of, um, you know, when we colonize space, uh, what will that be like, you know, 100 years out, 200 years out, 100,000 years out? Not that we can necessarily answer, answer that, but we can talk about some of the challenges we have in the way that we have been uh, genetically modified for life here on Earth as opposed to space. Yeah, and not just our journey into space, but life itself, because... Uh, we're ultimately talking about not just taking humanity, and granted, we're pretty vain, so a pretty vain species. So we're largely talking about taking humanity, but we're, but we're essentially talking about taking that seed of life elsewhere. Mm-hmm. What happens when the seed of life, um, Earth life, life as we know it, is taken to uh, a weightless environment or another world with a different uh, gravitational situation going on? Yeah. So uh, the, the most logical starting point here is really to discuss some of what we know about microgravity in humans. Um, ultimately, we really didn't have a firm idea at, about uh, the microgravity's effect on the human body until we actually got human bodies up there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and research still continues into how, these, uh, how the effects of microgravity uh, ravage us, um, how we adapt to those uh, this environment, uh, what effects it has on the the life cycles of humans and uh, the bodies and life cycles of countless other organisms. Yeah, so let's talk about what happens in microgravity when you throw up a human in space. Um, throw up a human in space. Yeah, and they just stick up there. Um, what they have observed, among many, many things, is something called puffy face and skinny legs. Also known as Charlie Brown head. Wow, yeah. okay, I like that. Because you essentially end up looking like Charlie Brown. Well, yeah, because spaceflight causes a fluid shift from the legs toward the head. And so you get the puffy face, and then your your legs begin, and your muscles, obviously, to begin to atrophy and become a bit thinner, and this is what they call the bird-like leg syndrome. Well, our, our bodies are, I mean, our, our, our veins are like rivers, right? They have to flow. And, uh, gravi- and gravitation, gravity, uh, the pull of gravity, is factored into that uh, quote-unquote design. Well, it's right. That makes perfect sense on Earth because, you know, you've got this uh, heavy inner core of of the Earth Mm -hmm. that is pulling us toward it, right, that the gravity down, and so the fluid would flow down. But then you there you are in space, and what does it do? It just flows up. Uh, So that is a huge problem, actually, and that's one of the reasons why... um, you do have this muscle atrophy, and as you had noted earlier, um, astronauts have to and crew members have to constantly work out in order to try to keep the stasis in their body. Yeah, there's not basically our skeleton is a load-bearing um, structure, mm-hmm. and if we 
if there's no gravity, then there's not really any load to bear. So we end up uh, just constant, like you said, constant atrophy of our muscle uh, and our skeleton system. Yeah, your um, muscles become dormant and your spine even begins to straighten because it doesn't, again, have that gravity, um, that weight that it's fighting against. So uh, people tend to get taller in a sense. Yeah. And then, of course, you're you're rather disoriented. I mean, you, you get more or less used to the environment. But uh, here on Earth, our brain receives uh, information about the environment through visual cues, mm-hmm. the eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, muscles and tendons. Um, you, you have a, a set of sensors to detect liquid movement uh, located in the uh, inner ear. And when you're in a weightless environment, it throws all of this out of whack. So, again, just the way we perceive the environment around us, we've evolved to perceive a uh, an environment with gravity. That is an up-down gravity, right? Right. Um, so what I think is interesting about that is you, you talked about the vestibular system, mm-hmm. which is in the inner ear. It's an organ way deep in there, and it's covered in thousands of tiny hair cells. And then on top of these hair cells are tiny little crystals that move and bend the hair cells, sending information to the central nervous system to guide eye movements and posture and balance. So if you don't have this up-down orientation, then all of a sudden you don't have um, you know, a stable platform for this organ to work on, and you begin to get two different sets of data, which cause something called space adaption syndrome, where uh, you know there's nausea and vomiting. And of course, I, I believe, and tell me if I'm right on this, this is something that just is happening in the first couple of days of space flight, that your body does kind of even itself out. But this is certainly yeah. a problem if you're going to you know, be puking for 72 hours. Yeah, straight. there's like a whole uh, series of, of phases one goes through on um, prolonged uh, space, well, not really space journeys, but prolonged stays in microgravity. Uh, I have a blog post around here somewhere. I'll, I'll be sure to link to it in the um, in the blog post that accompanies this, uh, mm-hmm. this podcast. But you end up basically going from early on, starting off with that uh, those feelings of nausea, you're vomiting, um, you just feel all out of sorts, and eventually you're reaching states where you're feeling rather euphoric. And then there's some crankiness uh, and just some... And flatulence. And flatulence, yeah. Unless mm-hmm. you're one of the, the few people that, that doesn't do that. Right. The perfect astronaut. Uh, so we, we have all these things that, that can happen to the body, that will happen to the body in a, in a micro-G environment. Uh, but we also have ways that we try and combat it, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the big one, of course, is exercise. Uh, we're, we're, not, we're not standing. We're not walking. We're not, we're not running around. So we need to use those muscles. We have to use it or lose it. So that's why you have things like the like the Colbert treadmill on ISS. You know, <laughs> it's it's let's get people on treadmills, let's strap into a treadmill, and let's keep them moving. Let's mm-hmm. let's just keep the body active, uh, because it's. I mean, you can think of it in terms of say um, say someone's a power lifter. They uh, they can't take a year off from training for power lifting and then go back and expect to lift gigantic weights, right? right. You need to keep that muscle tone up uh, to do this abnormal activity. Well, your body goes into the zero G and it's adapting, right? It's saying, oh, well, we don't have to do that work anymore. Uh, so you have to train for the abnormal activity of daily life on Earth. Yeah. There you go. So that's a good way to try to combat it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something I just wanted to say, too. That, that, you know, For 23 years, we've had uh, human beings that have lived off Earth um, for periods of time. So mm-hmm. this is a lot of information that we have about what's going on inside our bodies and also with plants and other animals. Yeah, yeah, we've uh, we've put a lot of thought into what happens when when people go out there and they come back. We've studied them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the, uh, the Soviets uh, did uh, they they did a lot of interesting work too, where they were answering some of like the early questions, like what happens if a man goes into space and then a woman goes into space, and what if uh, you know could could they could they even have uh, have children at that point? You know, I mean, right. they, 
so many questions uh, uh, were raised early on, and we're still answering a lot of the finer questions. Well, it's also leading us to to, to look at other species like bears, for instance. Yeah, because we got to get those guys in space. you got to get those dudes in space. Um, but more more to the point of when they're hibernating, the fact that they don't have any calcium loss, that their bones remain oh, yes, really yes, strong. Yes. So, you know, we're studying their systems to try to figure out what the, the magic is um, that we might be able to I use for ourselves. Just, I thought you were just getting at that we needed to get grizzly bears in space. Well, we just do. Yeah, we yeah. do, absolutely. Um, another thing that um, that has been uh, toyed around with um, is the use of exoskeletons. Um, for instance, there was the Russian penguin suit back in the 70s, which featured elastic bands and pulleys um, to create the artificial force of muscles and bones. Um, and there have been a number of other uh, suits that have been... Uh, that have been uh, rolled out and experimented with as well, and it's mm-hmm. a really interesting concept. The you know it, it's inst- instead of an exoskeleton that gives you superhuman strength, uh, it gives you you have to it gives you st- strength that you have to struggle against. You know, right. it's it's not trying to help you. It's it's, it's giving resistance. you a workout. Yeah. So as I reach across this weightless environment. Uh, and just to grab my iPod or whatever that's floating in front of me, the suit would actually make that more of a chore than, than microgravity actually makes it. Uh, so it's an, it, that, that is an interesting concept as well. And um, both of these ideas show up in uh, a little something uh, I sent you a clip of uh, earlier, and I'll, mm-hmm. I'll include this clip on the blog post that goes along with this podcast. But um, there's a movie called The American Astronaut by uh, Corey Maccabee. came out several years ago. Really weird, really fun flick. Kind of a space musical, uh, western, Great Depression kind of a thing. Yeah, it's very yeah. hard to it's describe. It's got this dust bowl feeling to it for sure. Yeah. Well, there's there's a scene where they encounter these silver miners who are flying around in outer space in this barn shapes. It's like a, it's a spaceship, but it looks, it looks like a barn. Mm-hmm. And they've uh, they have this weird thing where they're looking for this source and this there's a star map and uh, they're they're just as crazy as I'll get out because they've been cooped up in these barns flying around in space, um, totally weightless. So their bodies have become these distorted things with giant swollen heads and long slender limbs. And, uh, and that they call it space punies in the movie. They get the space punies. They get the space punies, yeah. And they're training one of, they have this one child that's like the chosen one to return mm-hmm. to Earth to uh, find this chart for them. And so they've outfitted him in this bodysuit. That uh, that has the, this kind of uh, this kind of exoskeleton technology that I'm talking about here, this penguin suit technology. The idea being that uh, this will train him up and this will make the child strong enough to sustain uh, the Earth's gravitational pull. And yet, and yet he's stupid. So it's, yeah, it's pretty, doesn't work out. Yeah. He's a good kid, but uh, you have to see the movie to, to find out how that goes. But but I, I always found that that whole scenario interesting because as silly as the film is, it actually ends up tying into a number of interesting scientific questions. Actually, I mean, it's, it's pretty great. It's very entertaining. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's talk about the space punies and animals. Yes. So experiments on animals, that's, uh, and goes hand in hand with space exploration. And, uh, and you know, it, it also allows us to do things like we're not going to be able to test when we certainly don't want to test say human birth in, Space. Uh, we don't want to. Te- we c- we can't test like longer uh, life cycles of humans. Uh, so we're we're very interested in seeing how various animals uh, behave. And we've done this from the beginning. Yeah, before from the beginning, we even, before even we went put there, people yeah. in in um, a spacecraft. We launched. I think it was first a rhesus monkey, right? Mm-hmm. And then a dog, and then various other animals. Oh, insects, bears. Well, no bears. Yeah, <laughs> but um, uh, I mean, it's it's really kind of surprising though. Because you, you look at some of these animals, and some 
adapt surprisingly well, and others that you think would would just get along swimmingly, um, no pun intended, uh-huh. uh, don't fish as well. Yeah, yeah, don't don't do quite as well as you would think. Uh, for instance, uh, they say that within uh, five minutes, mice are floating around in their living spaces, grooming themselves, eating. Just carrying them along like normal. Whereas I, I can't help but imagine that if I took my cat up there, the cat would just freak out the whole time. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, fish and tadpoles swim in loops rather than straight lines. Again, there's just no up-down mm-hmm. orientation here. Which is interesting because they're, they're in a, a buoyant environment. We, mm-hmm. I mean, we, train, uh, we partially train uh, astronauts in submerged environments to help them get a handle on what uh, a weightless environment will be right. like. So. So you would think that yeah, they would be Yeah, on the surface of things, you it. think they would, they would adapt rather well, but it's not really the case. Uh, baby mammals have a hard time in space because they, uh, they normally huddle for warmth in space. Right. Uh, and they are usually going toward the nipple to, to get milk. So if you're floating away from the nipple, that makes it that's quite difficult. That's really traumatizing. That's a really horrifying image to imagine a kitten floating away from the nipple, screaming mm-hmm. and set off. Just see how many times we can say floating away from the nipple. And, um, yeah, both birds and fish um, who can move three-dimensionally in their normal environments, mm-hmm. um, they end up just going in these loops um, uh, when they're, in, when they're in, actually in a uh, micro-G environment. So it, it just throws them off, even though you would think a bird and a, uh, and, and a fish would do really well. Yeah. yeah. Orb spiders. Oh, the orb spiders are pretty amazing. Now, they, they on, you know, on Earth, weave uh, exquisite web designs, yes. beautiful, um, you know, very symmetrical but as you would imagine in space, they, they weave very wacky configurations. Again, they, they don't have some, you know, this axis to, to work off of. Um, and they, they're not anchored. So you, you do see some of the similar, um, it actually reminded me of some of the studies of hallucinogens and spiders oh, yeah. and some of the strange configurations that come out of that. What's interesting though is I was reading about the, um, one of the, the first spider investigations, uh, this was back in 1973, Skylab. Uh, they took two uh, garden cross spiders, which is a type of orb weaver, up, and uh, they let them do their thing. And then, uh, and then uh, more recently, they did a, another experiment on uh, the ISS. Uh, this is back in 2008. But in both experiments, the spiders initially built really distorted, crazy webs. But when the f- within a few days, the spiders they say seem to adapt to microgravity and begin to spin more symmetrical webs. So you you still see a certain level of you know the the spiders up there the animals up there it gets its bearings and then it's been is able to uh, to behave with this new environment in, well, a, in there's, a way that works. There's also this idea too that size matters that the the larger the the thing the mm-hmm. um, that that's there the the human or the spider or the bacteria the better the chances of survival and adaptation. Yeah, and in the spider it does seem like it would it would do particularly well because mm-hmm. here's a creature with multiple limbs. Um, very dexterous, spinning webs to move around. Like if, if you had to uh, pick an animal that would behave well in a, in a weightless environment, you'd think the spider would, would be great, mm-hmm. especially uh, web-building uh, spiders. Indeed. All right, let's talk plants because I thought this was really interesting um, that it's not just uh, that they want to study um you know, the way that plants behave in space. But there is this idea, too, there's a psychological level for astronauts, for crew members, that if they can see a seedling, if they can see a bit of green, yeah. um, that this is really helpful in terms of grounding them and making them feel a little bit more like, okay, here I am, you know, living <laughs> in, you know, a very sterile environment, and yes, I f- and yet I feel connected to the Earth in some way. Yeah, I can't help but be reminded of, uh, did you ever see Silent Running? No. Sci-fi film with Bruce Dern in it, where he was uh, 
he was in space and he had these three little robots with him and he's uh he's caring for these gardens these massive uh like biospheres in space it's a classic film uh but but at any rate, the idea that you're in space, but then here are these natural green environments. Mm-hmm. The, the, it was a film with a strong ecological message. But in watching it, you, you saw high-tech space travel and green environments together, and it was very comforting. Um, uh, the the, uh, the Danny Boyle movie Sunshine also had scenes where you see people growing things. And, yeah. And, uh, and, yeah, you can imagine going a little stir-crazy if you didn't have that around you. But these movies also had artificial gravity and when you do not have a form of artificial gravity going along things get rather complicated because i mean think of your plants i mean they're growing in soil how does how does the 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 soil uh, nourish the plant how does the plant get water well and you've got your window plant right so right. it's getting some you know direct sunlight right there um, you've got the soil and uh, the water uh, water droplets in space floating away um, so yeah i mean it's it's a bit of a conundrum yeah, I mean, you end up. I guess you have to have to uh, depend more and more on hydroponic type systems. Or uh, yeah, um, interesting. I saw um, you've seen these plants that grow upside down, right? It's like an upside down planter. Yeah, you could maybe see something like that working working well. Uh, adapted because that too depends on gravity because you're putting the water in the top of it. But yeah, but it, I could imagine specialty planters um, might uh, become popular well university of arizona has a mock-up of a giant pod-like greenhouse for space and mm-hmm. um it's planting some pods and basically they would supply half of the daily calories for astronauts as well as um, all of their daily drinking water and their oxygen what kind of plants are we talking they didn't go into specifically what kind of plants because i you know this is just a prototype mm-hmm. phase right like now handfuls of algae right um uh, Possibly. Well, because actually, realistically, well, yes. some of this thing, the uh, the vegetation we're looking at is is actually um, not land vegetation. Vegetation. We're not yeah. just looking at let's grow carrots in space, but let's see what what we can grow that's nutritious that actually might work. Well, and you'd need something that was really hardy that didn't need a ton of sunlight, um, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea here is um, it's pretty cool because you can recycle the nutrients in the water, and uh, but you know, as it always comes down to, it's it's a matter of practicality because something like this has a larger payload and it's harder for you to get it up into space, right? Mm-hmm. But it is a first step to possibly uh, creating this sort of crop-like system. Um, I've also read that if we were to grow um, uh, algal mats in space, they would end up actually growing in these three-dimensional communities, like almost like big cubes of, uh, of, of matter. So it's interesting to think about that. Like in a, in a scaffolding situation or just that the, the structure themselves would begin to... I, I assume scaffolding, but um, but it becomes uh, becomes interesting to imagine how we might tinker genetically uh, with our vegetation to maybe engineer the type of plant that would sort of grow in floating clumps. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, Lord knows stuff grows in on space <laughs> on space stations because uh, I, I've read some of the accounts of uh, how how grungy. Uh, like uh, like uh, uh, the Soviet uh, stations, uh, particularly, would, would sometimes get. You're and, talking bathrooms here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so th- that that's the thing. Uh, the, a lot of microbial life, I mean, is particularly hardy, and and will be able to grow both inside and outside, <laughs> potentially the spaceship. So, all right. Well, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about um, not only our own evolution here on life, but the possibility of evolution, humans evolving in space. All right, we're back. Um, experts seem to agree that life as we know it is again very very much tied to gravity mm-hmm. if there was no I mean on a very large in a very large sense gravitation is one of the the primary um, 
uh, stitches in the fabric of reality. And uh, if you take that out of the equation, things tend to sort of fall apart. It becomes hard to imagine um, the structure of the universe itself, uh, much less this little thing that happens to be growing on some of on some of the uh, the orbs in this uh, grand design. So naturally, gravity is important to life. Um, that being said, life is pretty hardy. So uh, it, it seems that once life has evolved on a world with gravity, mm-hmm. if it had the chance to travel into a weightless environment, uh, it would be able to thrive uh, as long as the resources were there. It would probably have to have some help. It would probably have to have an intelligent um, work, worker or architect there to uh, make sure everything's getting watered, that thing, manipulating the environment in a way that, uh, that uh, would nourish it. Mm-hmm. So creating a, an environment within an environment in space, is that what you're right. talking about? Yeah. Um, and I think that some of the clues that we have about this this adaptation or this ability for us to really um, kind of morph ourselves to environments is best looked at in the context of when we kind of crawled out of the sea, right? Yes. Because that's where you really see gravity come into play and in how species were formed or, or became more and more complex and adapted. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you have this buoyant environment in in the water, and then yeah. if you're you're climbing out of that, suddenly you're gonna. And we're talking a, a lengthy process here, and not just a not just a not oh, two days. I, uh, yesterday I was a dolphin, now I'm a wolf. It, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> life moves at a small smaller pace than that, but um, but still, that's a huge change, and you could you could definitely um, compare that change uh, to the. Uh, the Earth to micro G or the micro G back to Earth scenario, right? Because if you're just crawling out and you're, um, you know, you're some sort of creature who's on all fours, then and you're quite small, mm-hmm. then you're going to have a different gravitational load than another creature that can can actually get up on its hind legs and become vertical and even larger. So you get this idea that um, as as a result of all these different changes, these directional changes, right, horizontal versus vertical, you have moving fluids within the organism and structures that help um, support this load and and, uh, musculature that supports this load. Real quick, a case study that that ties into that, uh, snakes. Um, Snakes live in various environments, and uh, it's really interesting when you compare tree snakes to sea snakes. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, tree, tree snakes uh, spend most of their time uh, either going up or down trees. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, in a, uh, they're in a vertical alignment in a, uh, in a world full of gravity. Sea snakes, on the other hand, they're swimming around in this buoyant environment. Um, as a result, tree snakes uh, have uh, their hearts located closer to their brain and in uh, experiments are the most uh, gravity resistant. Sea snakes, of, of all snakes, are the least gravity resistant. Because their hearts are further away from their brain, right. and we have that same problem with our astronauts in which the fluids are flowing upward, right? Right. So for your tree snakes, it's perfectly fine because it's, you know, all the machinery is pretty close together. Mm-hmm. Huh, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it, like I say, it sheds a little, little more light on what we're talking about here uh, in, in terms of the effects of, of gravity or the lack of gravity mm-hmm. on an organism. Okay, so we've seen what has happened over, you know, from four billion years ago when um, it was just, you know, a bit of bacteria to us, you know, emerging out of the sea and becoming a more and more complex species and a larger species and and therefore more prone to the effects of gravity. Let's talk about this really very cool idea of how we might evolve in space. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, cool, but also potentially um, horrific because we're talking about 
people get a little uncomfortable when you talk about fundamentally changing the human form and and shifts in what it is to be human. Mm-hmm. And we talked about that with with cyborgs, the idea that as we continually augment ourselves to deal with new environments, uh, to what extent does that dehumanize us? And then to, to what extent do do we let environments change us? And how does that alter the uh, the human argument? And yet, uh, you know, we're we're kind of a migratory animal, right? Like this is going to happen um and uh, and i mean according to to many it's vital to the long-term survival of the human race right uh, uh and whether or not you agree with that still you know you have this idea of of the human body adapting i mean just think about like the neanderthal right um, a very different person i guess you could say than than homo sapien in terms of this really heavy musculature yeah. and we were you know much more successful because we didn't have to have all of that that body weight and that mass and we didn't need quite as much energy so when you start to look out 100 years 500 years 100,000 years from now mm-hmm. you know what will the human body look like if uh, we become space dwelling beings well it was interesting i was reading uh, this article the impact of gravity on life by emily r uh, moray holton uh, who's a nasa hims research center uh, researcher and uh, she made the argument that ET is basically a good uh, or a reasonable model of what uh, humans um, who continue to evolve in a, in a micro G or zero G environment mm-hmm. might look like. Well, yeah, and you, you take the leg situation, right? Right. Don't necessarily need legs in space. Yeah, so they're they're stumpy and barely usable. Uh-huh. However, long, skinny arms, not a lot of muscles going on there. Um, you know, ET doesn't really have guns, but. But he has very long arms uh, and, and dexterous fingers for uh, manipulating buttons, mm-hmm. um, kind of a swollen manatee-like body, and, uh, and a giant head. And Which, a, fluids, yeah, head, fluids, giant. Yeah, yeah uh, because uh, the, you get into issues of, uh, of looking at, at how bodies behave in a buoyant uh, environment. I mean, mm-hmm. look, at, look at mammals that, that live in the ocean. Uh, some scientists say that you can you can see that as a potential model of what uh, what prolonged uh, uh, exposure to zero g might uh, might do to the human body. We have sort of become uh, humanities, if you will. Well, in your posture would yeah. change. Um, there there are all these different elements that you wonder how your body might uh, adapt. But still, of course, life is more than just this form. It is also the uh, the the the, con- the continuing cycle of life and the propagation of new species uh, and, and new generations. So, um, at some point, these ETs are going to have to uh, well, they're going to have to do it uh, sexually. <laughs> uh, which there there has been a, a at least a wee bit of uh, research into that. Um, there have been uh, there there have been uh, you know studies and, and papers where they argue that you would need certain docking harness situations to really make. Um, human intercourse possible in outer space. So I don't know how ETs do it, but they would... They would They would find a way to dock yeah. each other, basically. There would probably be some sort of uh, yeah, special space furniture involved. But then what happens when uh, the animal is going to give birth, right? Well, here's, here's though, the idea that um, before we can even get to ET, um, the ET versions of ourselves, right. um, if we are to, um, you know, propagate... Uh, out in space, that if we were to do that and we were to colonize Mars, for instance, then we would really have to make sure that there would be a, a fairly large mix of genes expressed. What right. am I? What am I saying here? Like well, you don't, we don't want, want a small population of that ends up, um, you know, basically. You don't want an inbred colony of 
of people with space punies. Right. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Then, then you just have the space punies. Um, so, you know, you'd want to make sure that there was enough genetic material that, that essentially that people were returning to Earth and, and propagating there. And then, again, um, maybe you'd have more and more generations, more people colonizing Yeah, Mars. you need genetic diversity for any population to survive, not only the ravages of some sort of off-world uh, potentially hostile situation, but things as simple as uh, uh, diseases. The emergence of a disease, if you don't have enough gen- genetic diversity, uh, one illness could wipe out everyone because everyone has the same weaknesses um, just expressed uh, over and over again. Well, and there's also this idea, too, that if the body is now trying to naturally select for living for long periods of time in space, that this is going to play out in increased infant mortality. Mm-hmm. So you're probably going to see this because the body is trying to figure itself out um and, uh, you know, this, it may be sort of difficult to, to have, um, children, at least at first in space, again, because we're trying to adapt. And we, we've conducted experiments with animals, um, giving birth in space, or, well, I say giving birth, but we're, for instance, uh, frogs. We've looked at the development of, uh, of tadpoles in micro G, mm-hmm. and, uh, and there are often complications. We don't see lungs developing like they should, uh, et cetera. Well, and this is from the article that you spoke of. Um, there, she's actually talking about native Indians and people of Tibet mm-hmm. who have independently evolved more efficient oxygen transport systems in the blood. And <clears throat> she does say that they do sustain higher death rates for infants born at um, altitudes. And actually mothers, this is very interesting, mothers who, although they evolved to, to mm-hmm. have an, uh, this really efficient oxygen transport, they actually will descend to the more oxygen-richer altitudes to have children. So her idea is that you might have to do the same thing. You might have to have these suborbital pods, birthing pods, essentially, that you have to drop down to in order to have a healthy, successful birth. Huh. Like uh, like special nursery stations that, yeah. uh, that exist at lower orbits. Yeah. yeah, yeah. you could have like the ISS uh, nursery station, at least starting out with, right? Huh. Um, so... There's, it's possible, right? There's there's things that we know about how we work here on Earth that we can uh, extrapolate in space. Yeah, and then of course there are there are proposals on the table for how we could achieve, we can achieve a uh, an artificial gravity situation, right? Uh, which we could do we could and probably should do a whole podcast just on those. But you could have a situation where uh, most of the uh, space stations uh, or ships that uh, this human population. Um, are using uh, are zero or micro G, but then you would have a few that are uh, that are augmented to to spin and create uh, uh, centrifugal uh, artificial gravity, mm-hmm. and uh, and those would be the places you would go to um, to actually uh, have your child. Well, and then there's this really interesting idea of let's say there's been enough generations, there's been ten generations at some point mm-hmm. that have lived in space, and it's still possible to go back to Earth. At what point can you not return because you have adapted? Yeah, um, like the um, the person who's lived in New York for a decade. Right, right, right. You just can't go back to it um, because we already know that when uh, astronauts re-enter space, they have tons of problems at the beginning, at least, trying to uh, recalibrate their systems. Yeah, uh, you know, they all of a sudden you know, they they forget how gravity works. They're dropping things all the time um, because everything has weight to it. Uh, they're feeling sick. Yeah, and they uh, they're and falling they down a lot. They've lost uh, bone mass. You know. Yeah, they're, yeah. That's an interesting question. Yeah, and so do you end up with a scenario where you in, where you have humans that have become sort of their own subspecies, 
uh, out in the void. You know, these these ousters. I was about saying, there's Junies, you know, yeah. and uh, or 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 it becomes sort of a. It's, it's easy to imagine like a caste system where the um, the the human the subspecies that has evolved to thrive in the void becomes sort of the uh, like the the uh, the pilot class that uh, that you know sort of like uh, sort of like the uh, the guild navigators uh, in uh, in the dune books okay so i'm going to take it down to a bread level just sourdough sourdough bread you know is created from a mother dough and in fact in san francisco yeah, uh, I, I kid you not, the mother dough exists. Uh, see, I, see, I've heard about various things in fermentation where you have a mother and then you use that to create more kombucha or stuff, but I didn't know sourdough was like that. Yeah, the mother dough is in San Francisco. Uh-huh. And, uh, Wait, there's one sa- There's one mother? Like the, like oh, the, I don't know if it's, if it's the mother dough. Like the, ha- but like the alien queen that just it lives yeah. in San Francisco and yes. all sourdough Let's say all it? the sourdough in the universe comes from this okay. mother dough, just for fun. Okay. No, but um, <laughs> but there, there's this idea that, you know, maybe the uh, other species or humans that have evolved more begin to look at Earth and humans as this mother dough. Like, well, if we need to get back to the genetic material, we can, but they're just a bunch of dough sitting around in, in San Francisco. Oh, so this, but this brings to mind an even more potentially horrific scenario where original humans are something that you keep uh, stored away frozen for when you have to return <laughs> to might. the it's it's something precious to be uh, to be to be kept locked away in, mm-hmm. in uh, some sort of uh, cryostasis uh, and uh, and while all these other new forms of human life uh, continue to thrive wow so we become like uh uh, like a museum of humans yeah, well, or a tomb of humans. Yeah, we're just a source code that uh, is occasionally pulled out and uh, augmented. That's that's cheery enough. Yeah. I'll go with that. Well, but I mean, the, if, if the driving force is that you want life to continue and you want some form of human life to continue in other worlds, then isn't uh, isn't that worth the, the bargain? I, I guess. Mean, I just, you know, you don't want to be relegated, not that we'll ever see that day, but relegated to being, like, part of the museum shtick, right? Yeah. You know, or, like, they're they're visiting us just to visit the museum. Hey, kids, look. Well, on one hand, like maybe, maybe we're in the museum. Maybe we're, we're relegated to the, you know, we're like the mummy that a, a child looks at and picks mm-hmm. their nose. Doesn't realize how awesome it is, or maybe we're worshipped like gods. We're like we're the the original. We're the we're the source code. We're the seed, and uh, and and we're revered. Hmm. I feel doubtful about that. Well, someone will find out one day. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, there's there's just a taste of of some of the the science involved in, in micro G zero G living, uh, the, the evolution of life beyond the planet. Uh, so hopefully we just sort of. Uh, got everyone's uh, feet a little more wet on that topic. And uh, I'll link out to some of these sources, uh, too, that we used in the uh, blog post that accompanies this episode. Well, let's call over the robot here and look at some uh, listener mail. All right. Well, we received uh, a few different uh, uh, bits of feedback uh, from the episode The Horror, um, where we talked about um, our fascination with with horror fiction, horror movies, and what that means, mm-hmm. uh, how our brains work when we're watching a scary movie, that kind of thing. So I'm going to read a few of those here. Uh, Kyle writes in and says, Robert, you had mentioned a VHS cover of a poorly done puppet coming out of the toilet on your horror podcast. I just wanted to write in and second your childhood reaction to the Ghoulies VHS cover. I distinctly remember seeing this VHS in many rental locations over the course of my 80s, 90s childhood. I have even mentioned it in my, uh, I've even mentioned it to my wife on a couple of occasions. Even as an adult, I find myself every once in a while getting a little creeped out when I'm alone in the house late at night and I need to use the restroom. 
I've never seen the movie and probably never will, but I thought it was funny to hear you mention it on the podcast. I wonder how many other people out there carry this vaguely creepy image around in their head. Uh, he says, okay, I'm going to go listen to the rest of the podcast. Keep up the great work, Kyle. Um, I, had, I actually had to look up this uh, this VHS cover again, and I was reminded that the, the ghoulie on the cover, this mm-hmm. horrible little green puppet with piranha teeth, is also wearing suspenders for some unimaginable reason. Which makes it even more awful. Yeah. But still, I, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm glad to, to, to hear that other uh, other people have had the same experience with that uh, that cover. Um I just uh, I'm about halfway through creating a blog post that I'm gonna that's gonna go live sometime today probably, uh, where I'm, I'm just gonna go through ten different VHS horror covers uh, from the '90s video store that kind of warped me or traumatized <laughs> me as a child uh, because I really started to think about it and I'll often you know I'll look up old these old VHS covers mm-hmm. and look at them and kind of you know, become a bit nostalgic. But it's really interesting to look at them and think about, like, what did that do to me? What kind of effect did seeing that as a child um, you know, have on me? There's, there's something magical, magical about, a, about the video stores of the, uh, the 80s and 90s that we just we don't have anymore. Well, it made you into the wonderful nut that you are today. Yeah, yeah, it did. Uh, it, it, and a whole generation, I mean, it's, it's a, I'll, I'll get into this in, the, in the, uh, the, the blog post that I make, but it was it was like this this chamber of ideas, you know, the the video store, all these little boxes with these often amazing illustrations on the cover or provocative illustrations. But it but it wasn't like a library. In a library, you can pick up the book and you can instantly get a taste of it. And uh, and if you go uh, on the internet anywhere, you can generally drink in about as much of any given idea or film or whatever as as you want. Even if it's not out yet, you can. You can quench your thirst on anticipation and speculation, mm-hmm. and uh, and what and, and source uh, uh, inspiration for that particular piece. But back in that those those video stores, you didn't you didn't have IMDb, you didn't have any of this. Right. You uh, so if you saw this provocative bit of, of art there, you you didn't have anything else to go on. And to find out more, you would you would have to see it. You would have to rent that. And if you're a, a child, you you either didn't have the, the the power in many cases to rent it, or or, or even the the inclination or the desire because it looked frightening. Anyway, I'm going on and on, but um, uh, th- thank you, Kyle, for writing in. I'm glad, like I said, I'm glad to know that other people were horrified by ghoulies as well. Uh, we also listened, uh, heard from a listener by the name of Lauren. Lauren writes in and says, "I just listened to your horror episode and I quite enjoyed it. I've always had a fascination with other uh, with others' fascination with horror. I don't like horror movies myself, but I'm always interested to hear why other people do. I wrote in to mention that I read Dune when I was about 13 or 14 years old, and ever since have recited uh, his fear mantra." Throughout my life, it began as a fangirlish, deliberate habit and turned into one I didn't notice that much uh, when I did it. I uh, especially respond to the line, fear is the mind killer, which really rings true to me about how crippling fear can be if you don't deal with it. I still recite it to myself in times of stress and fear. It was a nice surprise to hear you guys mention it as it's um, unintentionally becoming a big part of my life. Love the podcast. Keep it up, Lauren. So there you go. Um... And, uh, yeah, I have some more feedback from the horror episode, but I'll wait and do that on another episode. Okay. Yeah, and I do want to mention, too, that uh, we got a, a second listener email from someone who's a clown who uh, took issue with talking about um, clowns as figures of 
figureheads of horror. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I did want to say that I hope that uh, no clowns out there are feeling bad about that. We certainly don't want to disparage anyone's profession if you are a clown. Um, and the the listener, Mandy, also said that she felt like it was discounting actual real phobias. That, you know, if someone were to say that they had a fear of clowns, that, you know, that's not necessarily a real phobia um, that, that do exist, right? Um, so I did want to say that uh, we're not trying to discount that. And I think she also said that it was sort of a stand-in for humor, the like hipsterish humor, that if you bring up a clown, it's a stand-in for real humor. Uh, the reason why we brought up the clown, or I, I brought up the clown um, issue, is because I really do think that Stephen King did such an amazing job by using the clown as an example of... Um, our fear of this idea of, of the unknown, of how we're unknowable to ourselves, and that clowns essentially are wearing these masks that are um, really confusing us about what their intents are. So yeah. it's not to, to make fun of clowns. I just want to mention that. Well, and it's like, I mean, the thing about clowns, too, scary clowns, it's like creepy dolls, you know? Right. It's like the reverse of benign violation. And it's going to, and it's going to, of course, it's going to have a powerful effect on our imaginations. The idea that something seems innocent but is actually evil is uh, is a powerful idea and one that we will always come back to. Right, and that's why I think Stephen King just did such a, a great job with that because he really kind of seared that in a lot of people's imaginations. So while I can say that I am unsettled by clown imagery, um, I will say that that doesn't mean that we don't uh, understand uh, how much joy that some clowns bring to some people in the population, and that's a great thing. Yeah, the whole world loves a clown. So, hey, if you have something you would like to share with us, uh, be it related to the horrors or joys of clowndom, be it related to horror movies and VHS covers, be it related to gravity and the lack of gravity and the, the effects of these uh, uh, situations on life as we understand it, let us know about it. Uh, one quick way to get in touch with us, you can find us on Facebook, where we are stuffed to blow your mind. You can like us there, you can follow us, uh, and you can interact with us in a number of ways and then you can also go to twitter where our handle is blow the mind and you can always email us at blow the mind at discovery.com be sure to check out our new video podcast stuff from the future join house to work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow